Hi, I'm Sarah. I hope you're feeling welcome this morning. I'll just take a moment to let you know if you're a guest here, we have Bibles on the back table there. Um, you're welcome to grab one and follow along with the reading. Our reading today is uh, Revelation chapters 8 and 9. I'll give you a moment to find that. Revelation 8 and 9. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God and from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, 
and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, the other two woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Jed, thank you for your wonderful summary. It's good news about Kate. It's lovely to come under the prayer of the saints to hear together, uh, to have musicians who play uh, songs that we honour God and to hear God's word read. Uh, we are very blessed this morning, aren't we? Very, very blessed. Uh, let me lead you in prayer. Uh, Almighty and sovereign Lord, we thank you today that mercy and faithfulness surround your throne. You are majestic in glory and how wonderful it is that where you reign, peace rules. Lord Jesus, you are truly the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings and the Lamb that was slain, victory through sacrifice. All praise to you, our loving Saviour and Holy Spirit who brings us comfort and conviction. We are so thankful Father, Son and Holy Spirit, our one true God, we come to you today and we ask, would you please anoint our eyes, our ears and our hearts. May we see what you would have us to see, hear what you would have us to hear and taking your word to our heart, may you produce in us 
a wonderful harvest of righteousness, godliness and holiness for your glory. And this we ask in your name. Amen. Have you ever tried to learn another language? Well, during my Bible college years, uh, I had to learn ancient Greek and Hebrew. Let me tell you, it was a challenge to say the least. Uh, Every week we would be given these regular quizzes and I dreaded them. At the end of the year, you had to translate a section or a portion of scripture that was randomly chosen from the Gospels and then translate it from the original language to the English. Uh, Those exams frightened me. For me, uh, Greek and Hebrew were very, very difficult languages to learn. When we come to the book of Revelation, God speaks to us in a language that most, if not all of us, find difficult to grasp and comprehend. And to an unbeliever, the language of Revelation is completely gobbledygook. But I'm not referring to the signs and symbols. I'm not referring to the imagery of divine creatures, devilish beasts or thrones or altars or scrolls. I'm not referring to that apocalyptic language. I'm referring to the language of judgment. Throughout Revelation, and indeed the scriptures, God speaks to us in the language of divine judgment. Just for a moment, um, think of a flood, Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Achan, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, The list goes on. In Revelation chapter 8 and 9, we are confronted with God speaking to us in the language of judgment. But this time, the judgment is on a global scale, unprecedented. So it really raises the question for us this morning is, why does the one who so often speaks to us in the language of compassion and mercy also speak to us in the language of judgment? The answer to that question is of great importance and it's found in in these verses. But before we come to these two chapters, let me just set the scene. Do you remember in chapters 4 and 5, John sees this glorious vision of God the Father sitting on the throne and in his right hand is that scroll of destiny Written on the scroll is the destiny of God's final redemption plan. That is, it answers the question is, how will the world be brought to an end? And and that scroll was sealed with seven seals. And and the only person who could break those seals is the person who has the authority to know the mind of God and fulfil the will of God. And we discover in that chapter that that's Christ Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, and the Lamb of God who wins victory over evil through sacrifice. Then in chapter 6, Jesus begins to open the, the seals, the six seals at least. And every time he opened a seal, do you remember that there was a corresponding event? In the first four seals, the four horses of the apocalypse, 
gallop off to bring death and destruction. And in the fifth seal, we have the saints who have been persecuted. And in the sixth seal, there's this terrible disturbance in the whole of a cosmos. And, and what we discover is that those events are foreshadowing the events that will actually accompany Christ's return. Now in chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken and the scroll is opened up. With the opening of the scroll comes a vision of the events that will accompany the return of Christ, things yet to take place. Let me reread to you verses 1 to 5. When he opened the scroll, the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with a fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Brothers and sisters, this is a heavenly scene. When the seventh seal is open, there is silence in heaven. This is a dramatic pause. The absence of any sound from the angels or the saints or the Lamb, it heightens the intensity of what is about to happen. We are told that the seven angels who are standing before God are given seven trumpets. And that's really important. Because these trumpets initiate the outpouring of God's wrath. And that the angels are given the trumpets by God is telling us this is God's judgment. His messengers are doing his bidding. Now we have another angel who has a bowl and he's before the altar and up from the bowl comes the prayers of the saints. What are these prayers? They are the prayers of God's people who throughout the ages have called upon the Lord to vindicate his name. They are the saints who have been praying and who have prayed and who are praying, Lord, May your kingdom come. See, the world in its profound hostility to both God's word and to those who hold fast to it have not only rejected the truth of God, but they've taken the lives of those who hold fast to it. Do you remember in chapter 6, the martyred saints are praying to God, not for themselves, but for God? How long will you allow your name, your holiness, your truth to be trodden under the foot of this world's unbelief? They're calling out to God 
to vindicate his name in a world that denies his very existence. And now we read that God is about to answer those prayers. And he's going to accomplish this through judgment. The angel whose bowl held the prayers of the saints now fills out that same bowl, which is telling us in response to those prayers, that bowl is filled up with fire from God's altar and is hurled towards the earth. This is an astonishing scene in heaven. It is telling us that the coming judgments are not the manifestations of a capricious God. This is not a God who wishes to pour suffering upon the world for his own pleasure. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the holy and eternal Lord vindicating his sovereign and saving name to a world that is unrepentant in its denial of his existence. Friends, the world has a profound hostility both towards God and his people. What do Christians believe? Well, through faith we believe that God in his infinite goodness has made this world with his spoken word, do we not? Through faith, that wonderful gift of God, we believe that in our evil desires we fell away from God and suffered terrible alienation, both from God and those around us. Is that not what the gospel teaches? And do we not through faith believe that in his immeasurable, infinite love and goodness, God not only heals and rescues, but wonderfully restores us from our utter brokenness. Is that not the good news of the gospel we believe? Do we not also believe that through faith, the day of judgment is coming when God will call humanity to an account? If that is true, if I have expressed to you what is true, faithful Christian belief then that means we hold a worldview that is in direct opposition to that of the world around us. See, the world not only denies God's existence, it denies his story. But worse, it is hostile to anyone who faithfully holds to it. What does the world say to those who, on account of God's holiness, righteousness, account of his perfection and glory, stand against evil, like abortion and euthanasia, homosexual sex, gay marriage. Well, the world not only opposes such people, but it does everything it can to deny them, and it's moving ever closer to seeking to abolish them. How are we to expect the sovereign, saving God to respond to, to mankind's persistent denial of his holiness, his word, his salvation, and the unrelenting persecution of those who hold fast to his truth? When the world persistently fails to listen to the language of the cross, then there will come a time when God will speak in the final language of judgment. 
And what Revelation chapters 8 and 9 are telling us is that this day is coming, sisters and brothers. Much, again, can be said about these verses. Uh, But as seems to be my practice at the moment, let me bring to you one implication. Be not afraid of a world... Don't be fearful of its threats, its judgments, its persecution. Our present environment of increasing opposition to the Christian faith can tempt us to make decisions out of fear rather than love. Fear of being persecuted. Fear of suffering loss. Fear of not fitting in. For example, we may fear, rather out of fear, we may stay quiet when we need to speak up. Out of fear, we may join in when we need to step back. Out of fear, we may step back when we need to join in. One of the most beautiful passages in John's epistle is John chapter 4, verse 18, and it says this. God says... Perfect love drives out fear. Fear of persecution, loss or suffering are not to govern our decisions. Love is to govern everything we do. Love for God. Love for his holy name. Love for his glory. Love for others that they may know the truth that brings life. Because the day is coming when the Lord will make known to the entire world that they are denying the truth. It is true at this moment the world denies God as creator. It denies sin. It denies salvation. It denies gender. It denies marriage. It denies holiness, it denies purity, it denies so much of God's holy will. But what God's word is telling us is the day of vindication is coming. Stand fast. Don't be afraid. Your faith is not in vain. Let love govern every decision of your life, not fear, because perfect love drives out our fears. While God speaks the language of judgment to bring vindication, we also find in this chapter he brings judgment to call the world to repentance. See, if a world won't listen to the language of salvation, maybe it might listen to the language of judgment. Look with me at verses 6 to 9. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned into blood. A third of the living creatures died, 
and a third of his ships were destroyed. When the Lord brings his final judgment upon this world, the creation itself will be in utter distress. Fire consumes the earth. The sea is made foul. Sea creatures and man himself are destroyed. The rivers of the world will be made bitter and the sun, moon and stars, at least in part, will be darkened. If the world denies that God is the creator, then maybe the very creation in such turmoil is a call for the world to rethink its position. See, the mention of a third of the world being affected is repeated 12 times in these verses, 12 times. And it's indicating that many people are affected, but not everybody. At this point, some of you may already be doing this, but doesn't it take us back to the book of Exodus? Do you remember the plagues of judgment, darkness, hail, destruction? Well, it's not a complete match here between Revelation and Exodus. The illusion is unmistakable. In the time of Exodus, the Lord called Pharaoh and the Egyptians to acknowledge what? That he is the true God who is to be worshipped. In the final judgment, the Lord is doing the same. He is calling the world to acknowledge that he is the true God who is worthy of worship. When we come to verse 13, the angels signify an intensification of God's judgment with the words, woe, woe, woe. As if it couldn't get any worse. And in chapter 9, a dynamic plague will come upon the earth to cause the most horrid suffering. But these creatures come from the abyss in verse 2 tells us that they originate from the evil one. They are dynamic in nature. Their likeness being described as a combination of man and beast is telling us that it's an unnatural, diabolical plague. Yet we're told they are not to harm anyone who has a seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 4. Take your mind back to chapter 7. Do you remember that God's people who are present at the last judgment will be sealed? And that seal, we remember back then, was a mark of ownership, and ownership implies protection. Here in chapter 9, we read what it is that God's people will be protected from. And it's a dynamic plague. Why? Why does the world suffer but not God's people? Once again, it's a testimony to those who are in rebellion. It takes us back again to Exodus. Do you remember that some of the plagues didn't harm the Israelites, but they did harm the Egyptians? Why was that? It was a sign to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that the one who is against them is the true God. It was meant to lead them to repent, to turn their hearts away, to believe in the Lord and to allow his people to worship them. So too, during God's final judgment. If Christians are the only ones who are free from the suffering of this plague, then surely those who are suffering would be moved to repent. Then in verses 12 to 19, we have the sixth trumpet. 
the first woe makes way for the widespread massacre of the second. These verses, and I say this with a very heavy heart, they describe the unleashing or releasing of four angels who muster an army that wipes out a third of the world. And again, the language that we read in verses 14 to 19 is telling us that behind this earthly war is a dynamic power. And it's being used by God as an instrument for his wrath. I think at this point it's worth noting, it's probably an understatement, but aren't these sobering verses? Horrifying. Terrible. But they are real. What we learn from this at this point is that the Lord is speaking the language of judgment, not only to vindicate his name, but to lead the world to repentance. Here, as in many, many, many passages in the Bible, God's judgment is mixed with mercy. Yet how will the world respond? Look with me at verses 20 to 21. The rest of mankind that are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see, hear or walk. Neither did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual morality all their thefts. Even in the face of such catastrophic judgment, the world still refuses to believe. Do you notice that the world, and this is true for today, we become like that we worship. You worship something that is deaf, blind, unable to move you will become like your God. And you think of the alternative for us, we worship a living God, full of grace and mercy, holy and true. What a wonderful blessing that we can't become the likeness of Jesus. Isn't that our one hope? That's our one hope. Once again, and I mean this sincerely. There's so much I'd like to talk about these verses, uh, but I don't think it's helpful. Um, I want to bring one implication, and it's this. Repentance. Do you know one of the things we learn from this passage is repentance is not so much an act of a mind as it is of a heart. If it was simply an act of a mind, that is, an intellectual act, then when God's judgment passes over his people but inflicts the world, you bet your bottom dollar the world will repent. If it's simply just an act of knowledge. But they don't. Why doesn't the world repent? Because repentance is an act of the heart. It's turning our hearts away from sin. How do we do this? 
There's only one way, and it's through the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus. Do you know through Christ's sacrifice, God's promise to make our hearts tender to obey him is totally fulfilled? Let me encourage you this morning. God gives to us everything we need for our our life and salvation, including our, our repentance, our turning our hearts away from sin. One, I hope this is the way I want to try to illustrate this is let me share with you from my life. Um, a day doesn't go by unless I'm dreadfully sick, is where I don't come to the Lord to seek to cash the promises of His check. Not a day. So, what I do is I um, have the need to come to the Lord and I say, Gracious Lord, I have failed you yet again. I'm ashamed of how many times I've given in to this temptation. Lord, I ask you today, not only may you graciously forgive me, but I turn my heart away once again from this sin. And Jesus, I look to you I rest in the power of your blood to give me victory. That's repentance. It's coming to Christ, confessing our sins, no matter how many times we've failed. It's turning our hearts away and saying, I can't do this on my own, Jesus. My sin is too strong. But I look to you and believe that the power of your blood is the power for my victory. And here's the thing. God promises to answer that prayer. I'm not speaking... Personally speaking, that is my experience. Um, but, But that's God's word. When we pray that which is according to his will, he answers, God tells us, in John 15. So let me encourage you today, may these verses, amongst other things, move us to keep turning our hearts away from sin. Come to the Lord. Seek him to make tender your heart continually. He will answer. And come to the Lord praying that he'll make tender the hearts of those who have not yet repented. I'm not sure about you, but there's many, many people who I love who don't yet know Jesus, and it burdens me. So often, I'm just not in a position to do anything about it, except pray. I've been praying for someone as long as they've lived. And I see God turning their heart to himself. And it's marvellous. I want to encourage you, keep praying. Don't give up. Don't give up. Why does God... So why does the one who so often speaks to us in the language of compassion and mercy also speak to us in the language of judgment? Well, according to what we read today, to vindicate his holy name. 
and in his mercy to lead us in repentance. Let me pray. Father, when we consider today, just for a moment, your past, present and coming judgment, we tremble with fear. Who can endure your wrath, holy Lord? All those whom you have sealed, gracious Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffers your wrath and judgment and brings to us a life now and forever that is wonderfully glorious, certain and sure. What we ask, Father, today is please lead us not to make decisions governed by fear of what the world thinks, but love for you and others. Help us, Father, to have hearts that are tender, to always turn to you, and lead us to pray for those who do not yet know you, that you may make tender their hearts through the power of your spirit. And may you bring an anointing of your spirit upon this world where many, many, many thousands upon thousands upon thousands come to know the liberating power of Christ in salvation rather than in judgment. And we ask this in your name. Amen.